If you have your uh, worship folder, you can flip over to page 10, and you should find there um, the words to Genesis chapter 30, or sorry, 33, and um, I uh, printed the entire chapter, but I'm really only going to read up through uh, verse 17, and uh, in case you're curious, verse 18 in in many ways... uh, fits best with chapter 34, which we'll pick up next week. But just so you know, especially if, if um, uh, you've forgotten or you're, you're, uh, this is your first time with us, we're, in, we're back in Genesis today. Uh, we uh, really, since before uh, Palm Sunday, we've taken a little bit of a break. And we're, we're working our way through the middle section in Genesis and really the story of Isaac. So we've, we've done the creation part of Genesis, and we've done the Abraham part, and now we're in the Isaac part. And uh, I always want to remind us that, that Genesis, while it's the first book in the Bible, it is a good news book. It is a book that the Apostle Paul himself describes as it's a book in which God proclaims his intention to bless the nations. In fact, Paul says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And so the gospel or the good news is not simply a New Testament thing. It's a Bible thing. And I want to always remind us of that because as, as we've seen, if you've been tracking with us at all, Genesis is not always on the surface of things um, that uplifting. There are some really dark parts and um, we'll see that next week. Uh, Matt perhaps has one of the darkest chapters in the Bible to deal with next week. And that was entirely on purpose. Um, not really, but it's, uh, it's coming. But this week, we are going to continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And where are we in this book so far? Well, uh, what we've seen is even though that this is the section uh, most described uh, about Isaac, Jacob, his youngest son, is the main character in this section. And where we are in the story is back in chapter 27, we read about the story where Jacob deceives Isaac, his father, and his older brother Esau. And he steals the the blessing that was rightly Esau's. And as a result, Jacob flees to Laban, his uncle's house, a long ways away in in a country called Padan Aram. And, and Laban was his mom, his mom's brother, uh, Rebecca's brother. And Jacob lives with his uncle for 20-something years, serving his uncle. And during that time, God blesses Jacob. He blesses Jacob with a family. And he blesses Jacob with great wealth. And what we've seen throughout this story is despite Jacob's deception... Despite Jacob's sin and faults, God has made promises to Jacob. And throughout the story, we see God working in Jacob's life and changing Jacob. And finally, when we came to chapter 32, a few weeks ago, finally, Jacob gets to return home. But, as we noticed, in order for Jacob to return home... He has to confront his past. Because all we know 
about returning home as he is returning home to a brother who has, from chapter 27, had one goal, and it is to take revenge on his younger brother and to kill him. So if Jacob is going to return home, he must confront his past. And to confront his past is not just to confront the anger and revenge of his brother, but really to confront who he truly is as a deceiver, as a liar, as a cheat. And so when we looked at chapter 32, we try to look at the idea of what does it mean to confront your past? But as we come to chapter 33, now we begin to look at how can you face your future? So if chapter 32 was about confronting your past, chapter 33 is a story about facing your future with the hope of reconciliation. And so what I want to do is read this passage for us and then tell you how we're going to uh, work our way through it and um, see where that gets us. So if you w- would like to, feel free to follow along or you can just listen. Uh, I'm going to read through uh, verse 17. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, And because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children. Until I come to my Lord and Sire. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, here's how I want to work through this, and I want you to think about this whole passage 
as an attempt to answer the question, how can you face your future? Particularly when you take seriously confronting who you really are. So how I want to do this is I want to look at the anticipation of reconciliation from verses 1 to 3. And I want to look at the embrace of reconciliation in verses 4 and, and then 5 through 11. And then the process of reconciliation. And in order to, to wrap all that up, I'm just going to ask one simple question. So what? So we're going to look at those three things and then ask the so what question as a way to, to, uh, to wrap this up. So first, let's, let's look at the anticipation of reconciliation. Really, chapter 32 and 33 go together. They're all about the reunion of these two brothers. And it's a beautiful story. But before we, we get ahead of ourselves, I want us to look at what, what's happening here when we come to uh, the, the very first verse. In verse 1, Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees his brother coming with 400 men. Now, if we were to look back in chapter 32, we already are aware of this. Uh, Jacob had sent messengers to go and, and, and sort of scope out what's happening. And they come back and say, Esau is coming with 400 men, which is another way of saying he is coming with a military entourage, which meant nothing but destruction for Jacob. Everything about this situation spells fear and distress and terror. In other words, the revenge of Esau has in no way changed. And yet, Jacob is continuing to move towards his brother. So it's very important to understand the fear and the tension of this story at this point. Because here, what Jacob does is a profound story. It's a moving story of two brothers who end up reconciling. But it's also a profound story about the kind of reconciliation and healing that we all need, whether it be in our own homes, our own friendships, or whether it be the world as a whole, it's all right here. So what does Jacob do as he anticipates this meeting with his brother that for all he knows may very well spell the end of his life and the ruin of all that God has given him? Well, it's important to remember that prior to this passage, at the end of chapter 32, Jacob meets God. Jacob struggles with God. Jacob clings to God, and God blesses Jacob. And what he does is he gives Jacob a new name. Now, that is, would be an easy thing to, to run by until you remember what does Jacob's name mean. Jacob's name means a cheat or a deceiver. And God gives him a new name. You have to remember that because, as we'll see, how can Jacob move towards his brother? The only way he can do that is if he has had an encounter with God that prepares him to do so. 
to know that he now has a new identity, that who he once was isn't who he will be, and that God has not forsaken him. That God's words of promise and blessing, though he doesn't know how this is going to come about, that God will be faithful to him. And on that basis, Jacob continues to move towards his brother. And what does he do? He puts himself between his brother and all that he loves. Verse 3, he himself went on before them. And what does he do? He bows himself to the ground seven times until he comes near to his brother Esau. Now, this is a, a practice that, of bowing down seven times. It's a, a very well-attested common practice in the ancient Near East. In a situation when a servant or a, a, uh, an inferior, a, um, what they call a vassal king, a smaller king, would bow down to a greater king. It's a way of demonstrating um, submission. It's a way of yielding to someone who has greater power and authority. But what I really want you to see here is that while that is a common practice in that day and time, Jacob is doing something very specific. And we're going to see this. Jacob does a number of things in this encounter to communicate to Esau his understanding of what he did. So when Jacob is bowing down these seven times, he is in fact doing to Esau what would... Let me, let me try this again. What Jacob is doing is he is enacting the blessing that really belonged to Esau. So here's what I mean. When Isaac blessed Jacob... Isaac said to Jacob, may it be that, that you are the Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. What Jacob is doing is he is saying to his brother Esau, I stole your blessing, and I recognize that. And so I am bowing down before you to demonstrate I understand what I did, what I stole from you. So Jacob bows down these seven times. And what he's doing, he's acting out the blessing that Isaac really did intend for Esau. Now, what I want you to think about, just in terms of this, this first point and the anticipation of reconciliation, Jacob has no idea how Esau is going to respond at this point. None whatsoever. And that's perhaps the hardest thing when we have wronged someone and we, we find ourselves in a position and with a desire to work for reconciliation. You never know how the person you've wronged will respond. But what this story teaches us is that can't prevent us from moving towards a person whom we've wronged. And in fact, it very well may be you're moving towards that person that makes, that sets in motion all that's needed for that reconciliation to happen. 
So there's the anticipation of this reconciliation. And like we said, Jacob doesn't know how Esau is going to respond until verse 4. And in verse 4, what we see is Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, I want to just pause with you here for a moment that right here is the first moment that we read anything about Esau and his attitude towards Jacob, other than what we read in chapter 27, which was nothing less than Jacob's, or Esau waiting for his father to die so that he could kill his brother. And here, listen to these words again. It's one of the most moving verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Jacob, or I'm sorry, Esau sees his brother, his younger brother. He runs to him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck. In other words, the full weight of Esau's body falls upon his younger brother, who he has not seen for over 20 years. And then he kisses him. And then they weep together. Just think for a moment. How many times have you seen in your life two grown men embrace and weep in one another's arms? This is a beautiful moment where hurt and deception and anger and revenge and separation and alienation have characterized the last 20 years. And here these two brothers embrace and are in tears at their reunion. And it's, it's no, um, it's no uh, wonder then that Jesus echoes this very passage in Luke 15, that great story that he tells about the father with two sons, the one older and the one younger, and the younger one asks for all of his inheritance, and he runs off and he squanders it all, and then he realizes, not dissimilar to Jacob, he wants to return home. And he's made a mess of things, and he has to confront his past. And as he's on his way home, after he's rehearsed what he's going to say, the father sees him. And as the father sees him, He runs to this son. He embraces him. He falls on him. And he kisses him. And even as the son is trying to say to his father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just just let me be a servant. It's as if the father ignores the son and throws this huge feast and says, let's celebrate. This son who was lost, he's been found. And what I want you to see here, that's not a mistake. Jesus is telling us something through even this story of Jacob and Esau about the gospel. He's trying to show us through this story and even through this story in Luke 15 how God views sinners in Jesus Christ. Think of it like this. The life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus is God seeing you with compassion. It's God seeing you and while still a long way off, running to you in the person of his beloved son, Jesus, and embracing you and kissing you and weeping over you at great cost to himself. 
in order that he might celebrate over your return. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ communicates to you over and over. It's not just a list of doctrine, though it is that. It is a moving picture of the creator of the universe running to you, embracing you in all of your filth and all of your sin and everything about you you wish you could run from and wrapping you in his arms and weeping over your return. It's, it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of God's free, costly grace, not to you, but to him. But notice, not only does Esau run to Jacob and embrace him, notice how even in the midst of that, what does Jacob do? He insists on even more. Jacob, he says to Esau, when, when Esau says to him, in verse 8, Esau says, what do you mean by all of this company? If you were to go back into chapter 32, Jacob, um, he sends all of these uh, servants and flocks ahead of him as a gift to Esau. And Esau says, what's the meaning of all of this? I have plenty. Please, you don't have to give this to me. And Jacob says, no, 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 you don't understand. I insist on this. And why? Because Jacob is essentially saying, I stole from you, brother, the blessing that rightly belongs to you. And I can't go back and make that right, but I want to communicate to you the lengths to which I am willing to go to prove to you I know what I did. I take responsibility for what I did. I understand the hurt and the betrayal that I caused you. Please accept this because you have accepted me. You have forgiven me. And I want to make this right insofar as I am able to do that, however incomplete it may be. Jacob here does all he can to prove to, to Esau that he understands and that he takes responsibility for what he did. And Jacob tries to give back all that he stole. Now, I think it's worth looking at this, not only at the anticipation and the embrace of reconciliation, but I think we need just to ask, how did this even happen? How did the process of reconciliation unfold? So first of all, let's, let's look at these two brothers what brought about this change in their relationship? And uh, Esau is a little bit harder to, to find an answer for because really, like I said, we have not heard anything about Esau since chapter 27, verse 41, where he actually says, I'm going to wait until my dad dies, then I'm going to kill my younger brother. And everything after that, up until this point, really has been Jacob's effort at the initiative of his mother, Rebecca, to flee that revenge. And yet, notice in verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 4, again, Esau embraces him, and Jacob even says, you have accepted me. This revenge is replaced by loving embrace and forgiveness. How does that happen? 
And here's, here's the answer I, I, I want to propose to you. The text is totally silent about the change in Esau. And sometimes it's really important not just to pay attention to what the Bible does say, but also to what it doesn't say. And I want you to think about this. The Bible doesn't mention some process that Esau went through. It's mysterious. It's not laid out in detail. And in fact, that's a lot like what change is like. It's a mysterious process. How can God take a vengeful, angry, murderous human heart and change it into a heart that runs and embraces and weeps over the one who had at one point hurt them so badly? There's nothing on this earth that can do that. You see, Esau here, by way of the Bible's silence, is an illustration of a supernatural mystery. It's what God does and God alone can do to change a human heart from a murderous one to a forgiving one. But then what about Jacob? Well, Jacob, we see much more of the process through the story that again and again, Jacob remembers that God would be with him, that he will go with him, that he will keep him wherever he goes, and that he will bring him back to this place. That that promise makes its way deeply into Jacob's life. And it begins to shape him again and again. To the point where back in chapter 32, when he's terrified about meeting his brother, he prays and he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Jacob has been changed. Courage replaces cowardice. Jacob takes responsibility for what he had done. And what's really significant about this, he makes no excuses. You know what Jacob could have said? Well, Esau, you know, my mom overheard what our dad was going to do. And she told me I should go do this. Not once does Jacob blame shift in his encounter with Esau. Not once does he try to justify himself. And I want, you to, I want to press this on you for a moment. There is no greater practical exercise for you to learn, whether it is a, a moment where you have seriously hurt somebody or whether it's the small ways every day. I want you to try this. Over this next week, I want you to try to never justify yourself. Whether it be at home, whether it be at work, in any situation, when someone accuses you of something or when you've done something to hurt someone, try not to justify yourself and see how far you get. Because there is no true reconciliation until we stop trying to justify ourselves, until we stop trying to make excuses. 
until we stop blame shifting, whether it be towards circumstances or other people. So Jacob's courage replaces his cowardice, but also his humility takes the place of arrogance. There's nothing in this story where Jacob comes across as trying to be something he's not. He describes himself again and again as a servant. He bows before his brother. Jacob is not interested in saving face. And then also, his sorrow and regret prompt him to give back what he stole from Esau. All of that is how God has been at work in Jacob's life. And all of those things that we see in this story are crucial for us to face our own future with the hope of reconciliation. Now, so what? Why, why should you care about this story? And I think the answer is this. We are all, in any number of ways, trying to face our future in ways that minimize who we really are, what we're really like, and what we've really done. And what this story teaches us is that the only way you can face your future is to embrace the path of reconciliation. But here's the problem. No one can go back. No one can go back in time and undo what we did. Jacob cannot go back in the womb, in Rebekah's womb, and not come out a deceiver and a cheat. He can't go back and make it right. No, no matter how much he gives Esau, what he did happened. And so there's a certain limitation to this reconciliation. No one can go back and make it all right. None of us can pay it all back. And therefore, what happens is, what if you're afraid? What if your guilt or your shame is just too much? And instead of embracing the path of reconciliation, you embrace the path of damage control. If you do that, if you face your future not with the path of reconciliation, but with your own strategies, your own tactics to sort of manage the damage, you will only experience bitterness, alienation, separation, self-deception. You will never actually experience what the story of the Bible is really all about. And because none of us can go back and make it right again, we actually need something from outside. A reconciliation that is bigger and deeper than what we could ever accomplish. And that's really what the whole story is about. And this is just one story to point in that direction. And in fact, the Apostle Paul in, in Colossians, he says, God's purpose was to reconcile to himself all things through Jesus Christ by the blood of his cross. How can you face your future and, and not grow bitter? 
and not become more self-deceived and not justify yourself. The only way that you can do that is when you see that reconciliation is always costly. It's costly for both parties. But the good news of the gospel is that in the gospel, God absorbs the cost of reconciliation by giving his own son. God in Jesus pays what you cannot pay. He gives you what you need. In the gospel, God pays your debt. Now, here's the thing. You will never really enjoy true reconciliation in your relationships this side of heaven if you don't also experience the reconciliation that God freely gives in Jesus. You just can't. You will always hedge your bets. At some level, you will always be doing damage control. But like Jacob, who was declared to be someone new by God's grace, when you know who you really are, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done, can you move towards others? Even though it might be frightening and experience the embrace that these two brothers experience. So here's the question for you. How will you face your future? Will you face it with reconciliation that the Bible gives and promises to work into your life? Or will you face it with bitterness and excuses and fear and guilt and shame? We have that choice every day. And one of them is beautiful and life-giving, and the other one is like living a slow death. But the good news is that the reconciliation we need has already been done for us. And you are freely invited into it every single day, again and again and again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the story and how it makes real in so many ways um, the possibility and the path and the gift of healing in our relationships and the reconciliation that we so desperately need and, and so often hide from because it, it can be really painful and hard and costly. And so we ask that you would help us to, to see in Jesus the reconciliation that we most desperately need that can also change our lives inside and out. And we ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.